and welcome to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. By now, it should be abundantly clear to most, at least I hope anyway, that the world is rapidly being pushed into a series of cascading crises that are bound to forever alter society. If we are to believe the powers that be, the solution to all of these crises is greatly increased centralized control over what people are allowed to do, purchase, and consume. Though we are very much still in the shadow of the COVID-19 era, it has been clear for some time that we are also moving into the net zero era, where the need to not just reduce but eliminate carbon emissions is set to be sold as the quote-unquote only way to save not just human civilization, but all life on Earth in the not-so-distant future. Close followers of my work may be familiar that those leading the net zero push are the moneyed elite, from billionaire philanthropists, quote-unquote philanthropists, to central bankers to the most predatory banks and financial institutions on Wall Street. All of these actors now profess to care deeply for the planet and its inhabitants and claim to have the only feasible and enactable solutions to the climate and environmental crises. This solution being offered as the only way to save the planet involves a drastic economic shift where energy expenditure and as a result, nearly all human activity is closely monitored, managed, and rationed by experts. While the bankers, billionaires, and their appendages in media frame these ideas as new or novel, they actually date back to nearly a century ago when the framework for a technocratic system or technocracy was first created. Today, I am honored to be joined by the expert on the subject of technocracy, Patrick Wood. Patrick is a financial analyst, writer, and speaker, as well as the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, and co-author of Trilaterals Over Washington with Anthony Sutton. He is also the editor-in-chief of the website technocracy.news. He has done extensive work on how buzzwords like sustainable development and the green economy are little more than creative ways to dress up technocracy and related policies included in the 2030 agenda, as well as the historic roots of those policies and the actors that have worked for decades to bring them to fruition. So, hi, Patrick. Thrilled to have you on the program. Welcome to Unlimited Hangout. Oh, this is this is great, uh, Whitney. Uh, this has been long coming right that we should uh, <laughs> that we should be together and have a have a discussion between us and i do i do so appreciate your work um to step up to the plate um uh, we're the we're the proverbial uh, difference on the you know on the spectrum um i'm older you're younger um different perspectives different generations but you're you're contributing a lot to the to the discussion and to you know keep the research going. That's that's very comforting to me. I've been after this for 45 years, and um, uh, I'm going to keep after it. But you know there there will be a, a time when I can't do that anymore. But right now it's like yes, it's time to pass the torch, so to speak, to other people like yourself to to keep after this monster. Well, uh, thanks so much for saying that. Uh, of course, I really appreciate you, your work as well, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners do. And for those that aren't familiar with your work, I'm sure um, they will uh, very much appreciate the introduction <laughs> uh, now. So uh, as we're starting off here, I think it might be useful for some people uh, to define what technocracy is and what it means to you. Uh, ma mainly because a lot of people, you know, I'm sure you've seen this, um, you know, in social media, technocracy or the great reset, a lot of these terms yeah. have 
have come out and there's been, you know, I guess you could say partisan efforts to sort of, uh, you know, define what those mean. People saying technocracy is fascism, technocracy is communism and, and everything in between. So how do you define it? Wow. I always defer to how the technocrats define themselves. <laughs> and I was <laughs> uh, fortunate to, uh, to find such a quote and such a definition in the technocrat magazine from 1938. Of course, the movement was started earlier than that by a few years, but uh, they did have a magazine. It was called The Technocrat, and they printed it and distributed it throughout North America. Um, a German version was also distributed around Germany. But this is how they defined themselves in 1938. They said, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population, for the first time in human history, it will be done as a scientific, technical, engineering problem. And this is exactly what we have today. Uh, this, this, this definition is just as good today as it was back then. They went on to say, and I'll just introduce the thought now, they went on the same article, the next paragraph actually, to, to say, there will be no place for politics, politicians, finance, or financiers. And <clears throat> that's, uh, that's huge right now because there's this great antipathy between technocracy and our political systems around the world. And every country, um, you know, has a, perhaps a different political system, but nevertheless, it's a political system, whether it's a dictatorship, a democracy, or a constitutional republic. Uh, technocrats and technocracy reject uh, politics as a legitimate source of control. They believe they should be the ones that... Um, that control the entire population, what they call the social mechanism. And whatever the science of social engineering is, I think everybody will identify with us today. We are being engineered, socially engineered in a very scientific way. It doesn't matter almost where you look anymore, but it's coming at us from every direction. And uh, I personally, I think it, it kind of, you know, sets the hackles up on the back of people's necks when they, when they, when they feel the claws, you know, kind of digging into them, well, you're going to do this, like wearing masks, for instance, against your will. It's like, ah, you know, people just don't like that natively. A lot of them don't. And, um, but it's, you know, they, they realize pretty quickly that social engineering can get ugly really fast. So anyway, that's what technocracy is from, from the 1930s and it hasn't changed much today. So uh, maybe this is a good point to just go back in the history then and, and talk a little bit about the historic roots of technocracy, uh, who was responsible for it, um, and, you know, um, sort of the, the partnerships and organizations that ended up um, taking an interest in it and developing it to the point uh, that it is at today. So um, you mentioned, you know, just a little bit ago that this really goes back to the 30s. So who, who created the technocratic movement? Well, there was a lot of talk during the teens and the 20s um, about some ideas that eventually ended up in the technocracy movement. Um, there were people like Frederick Taylor, for instance, uh, you know, kind of the, the famous whatever, creator of Taylorism mm -hmm. now that was very technocratic in his thinking and, and others. Um, but in 1932 in particular, the technocracy movement uh, settled into Columbia University. Uh, which was the seat of progressivism at the time. It's probably still is. A lot of people still would think it is today too. But it really was kind of the hotbed of progressivism at the time. <clears throat> and scientists and engineers at Columbia University, uh, exclusively them, I, I don't know that there was anybody from the outside that was involved in the, in the actual project of writing this economic system. 
But those science and engineers at Columbia thought they could do better than free market economics. Uh, of course, that was in the heat of the Great Depression as well. It's a very dark time. A lot of people thought capitalism was dead. It would never recover. There was a lot of anger against politicians because almost everybody blamed the politicians for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should have been blaming the bankers and the money people, but they blamed, they blamed the politicians. Um, so <clears throat> they set about to create this new economic system uh, called technocracy, and they ran afoul of Columbia University, unfortunately for them, fortunately for us probably at the time, but um, one of the people that was leading the charge at Columbia turned out to be a fraud. And that was the, the actual, the, the guy that actually went on to create Technocracy Incorporated in 1934 after they got booted from Columbia. <clears throat> but the guy turned out to be a fraud and he had said he had all these, you know, degrees and experience and whatever in engineering. And it turns out he didn't, he just lied and he was a promoter. He was just kind of a blowhard and well, that didn't wash well with, uh, with Columbia <laughs> university. They're all a bunch of, you know, PhD eggheads, you know, and if you're not one of them, you, you ain't much. And uh, so they booted the entire movement out of Columbia and said, get lost. And the head of Columbia University was very embarrassed by it. And um, he was a kind of person that you didn't want to put in a compromising situation. So he was very angry. He threw him out. And as he threw them out, basically said, don't ever come back. And at the same time, Hearst Newspaper Empire, they, they realized that they had been had by this promoter. And so they forbid their entire newspaper network across the country to never use the word technocracy again. And I actually have the memo that they sent out or a copy of it that they sent out to all their newspapers around the country. That's hurt the Hearst media empire. And they just pointedly said, if, if you, if you ever mention technocracy uh, in a story again, you're fired. <laughs> and so there was no more talk about technocracy <laughs> in the media. That's one reason historians missed it. Um, there's not much in the American history books on technocracy, but that, that was why, mm-hmm. because they got booted suddenly from Columbia and then they got booted from media as, uh, as, um, especially, uh, the Hearst empire decided they were, they were never going to write another story on technocracy. So, um, it kind of branched out from, and after 1932, it branched out, became a private corporation, technocracy Inc. Incorporated, and they were incorporated in New York City, or state of New York. And the movement became very popular across North America. At one time, there was over 500,000 card-carrying members in North America. It was really big in the West, especially in the Northwest. It was really big in Canada as well. Canada had a lot of members, and they had a lot of meetings and home groups. And, uh, you know, they met at you know, places like the Grange Halls and whatever to have their meetings talk about technocracy and how great it was. Um, but it kind of fizzled. Uh, ultimately, they had no big money behind them. They lost the support of Columbia, so they kind of lost uh, probably the Carnegie money the, you know, the, that might have come their way and the Rockefeller money, et cetera. Um, they were kind of viewed as black sheep at that point. Um, so... The movement kind of fizzled out when World War II came around and the economy recovered and people realized that capitalism was not dead yet. Um, 
but uh, we know it made a great resurgence in the early 1970s in any case. So that, that would be another chapter we talk about. But that's kind of the history of the whole thing. It's a very, very odd, you know, twist and turn for, for, a, for an idea that was so heavily documented at the time at Columbia. And got, you got to hand it to engineers they, and scientists. They, they do understand how to document stuff. And so they, they had this, all these papers, the, the, the diagrams and the graphs and all that kind of stuff they made. And it, it got turned into a, a book called the technocracy study course, which kind of became the Bible of technocracy. And it's, it's out there on the internet. So people, people have scanned it. So you, people can go look at it if they want to look it up. It's called the technocracy study course and read about it. Um, <clears throat> but, um, what was really incredible about this, if, if anything else, is that the, the level of egotism that existed amongst these uh, scientists and engineers, uh, it was just incredible. They, they really believed that they were kind of a cut above everybody else and that they had it, you know, they had the right somehow to do this and that they just were going to change the world. Um, and yet there were gaping holes in their you know, in their whole thinking process, gaping holes that nobody ever apparently questioned back then. That's very strange. Well, it could be they weren't questioned just because the whole idea was so novel and so different than existing systems at the time that, you know, they didn't really even bother to think through the, um, you know, how its implementation to find those gaping holes, perhaps. Um, because I know that you've said that one of the main reasons for it sort of sputtering out in, in that period of time, technocracy, um, was because it wasn't technologically feasible at the time, uh, just because, uh, um, you know, the state of technology then, but that there were certain parties that did realize that technology would become, uh, would advance to the point where it would become feasible. Can you talk about um, some of those groups? Absolutely. <clears throat> and, uh, this, this kind of puzzle is, you know, all the way along there. One big puzzling thing, for instance, they talked about the North American technique and, uh, they, they made a map of the North American technique and it included, of course, the United States and Canada and Newfoundland, you know, all, all of Canada and up to Newfoundland and down into Mexico, uh, all of Central America and the top part of South America. That was going to be the North American technique. And on their maps, they just kind of colored the whole thing in, you know, in one solid color, like, well, this is going to be what we rule over. And it's like, well, okay, did anybody ask the Mexicans or the Canadians? Yeah. To go so an early history of sort of, um, you know, superseding the nation state. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. It's like, well, you just can't do that. <laughs> you can't just say, well, yeah, you're included now. Guess what? You know, aren't you so happy? Uh, ooh, that's what Klaus Mott said. <laughs> <laughs> you will nothing and be happy. Uh, it's kind of what they were saying to all these other nations, you know, like all, you know, Central American countries are, you know, pretty fiercely independent back in that day. And it's like, no, you're not just going to come down here and, and we're going to throw out our political system. So you can appoint some kind of continental leader to tell us what to do. Um, but the other thing that um, was really tell, telltale uh, for the seriousness of this was that um, the technocracy movement was given uh, a temporary housing at Columbia University. Columbia only had one building back then, and it was called Hamilton Hall. And they had a full footprint basement 
uh, at, for the whole thing. It wasn't a giant, giant building, but, but it had a whole basement. And so half of the basement was given to the technocracy movement to do their studies and to do their creating, whatever, uh, brainiac work. But next to them in Hamilton Hall, the other half was occupied by the early iteration of IBM. And they were busy building the first Hollerith computer right there. So here you had the, the scientists and engineers of technocracy mixing it up with the scientists and engineers at IBM who were clearly visionary and uh, what they were doing, what they were making with, uh, with the Hollerith tabulator. That was the same machine, by the way, that that went off to Nazi Germany mm -hmm. uh, to start controlling schedules and statistical analysis and train schedules, stuff like that, um, to support, uh, you know, the rise and strength of, of Nazi Germany. But um, they rub shoulders with these people. And I'm sure that they were all visionaries in that sense, um, forward-looking people. And they, I, my guess is, just kind of what I've read historically, is they understood that they were on the cusp of the scientific revolution, you know, the computer mm -hmm. revolution. And so a lot of those thoughts um, kind of rolled over onto the technocracy uh, idea uh, of what would be possible one day for data collection and for analysis of that data uh, to be able to control the machine, the machine being the social mechanism. So, uh, you know, as, as technocracy got kicked out, um, the, um, the IBM, uh, group stayed there, but they also left at some point and went off to create, I don't know, whatever they went off to create their own office and stuff to, uh, to continue to grow. But, um, <clears throat> just as a side note, you'll, you'll find this interesting that you would think that such an important part of IBM's history would be in the history books, but it's not. And uh, we discovered, myself and another Canadian researcher discovered, there was, a, there was an archive of IBM material at, Columbia, at uh, Columbia. They have a big archive uh, of old mm -hmm. documents and stuff. <clears throat> and we found, this, uh, we found this archive on the internet, actually. They, that was in, you know, they finally put everything up on the internet, a catalog. And we, we were perusing the catalog. We said, dang, there's, there's the whole thing on IBM. That was the history. That was right when they were there in 1932. And I thought, hot dog, you know, we're going to get a hold of that. And so we contacted uh, the, uh, they call him the curator. I don't know. I guess that'd be the librarian or the curator and said, we really, really, really would like to come and visit and see that, you know, go through that doc, that, that catalog. Well, he went back and looked for it and came back and said, you know what? There's nothing there. I said, you know, it's on the catalog and, and it shows clearly where it's supposed to be located. And I go back there and there's just nothing there. It's an empty, empty shelf. And I said, well, what happened to it? Uh, well, we, we don't know. I said, okay, well, everything has to be checked in and checked out very meticulously. Uh, even if it's been loaned to another university, which that happens a lot, you know, they loan stuff back and forth. There's got to be a log. So the guy went and checked again. He said, no, you know what? There's no log that anybody ever came and retrieved that information. There's no, no entrance or exit, nothing. And it just disappeared, flat out disappeared from Columbia University's archive. <laughs> and we never That's found hard. it after that. Never found mm. it. Just, just vanished into thin air. 
So it kind of tells you that there, uh, that there was something in that that uh, you know the people at IBM didn't want anybody to see, and so they just somehow disappeared it from not only from Columbia University but also just from the general circulation world. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's general circulation, and nobody's seen it since. So. Well, that's fascinating. Well, I think it most likely has to do with the timing and how their involvement with, um, you know, the, the activities of Nazi Germany. That would be my, susp- <laughs> my suspicion. That was that was exactly yeah. right. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And there had been a massive amount of research that had been done by uh, an author by the name of Edwin Black, um, who has written extensively about IBM and its role in Nazi Germany. And I'm I'm sure they hate this guy with a passion. But uh, his works are very good, very thorough. And he also had been snooping around at Columbia for that archive, we found out. Uh, and between, I'm sure between the two of us, we, we were probably minor players, but you know, Edwin Black is a published author and he's had huge success with his books. Um, they, they couldn't take it. They had to get rid of it, just hide it. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, not, uh, yeah, just not let it be. All right. Visible. So um, you've also written a lot about the Trilateral Commission. Um, and they're sort of connected here in the history of the rise of technocracy as well. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, them, uh, who created them, why they're important, and what their role is uh, historically in the uh, development and, I guess you yes. could say, entrenchment of technocracy? Yeah, absolutely. I, I view <clears throat> the Trilateral Commission as the fountainhead of modern globalization. There were... Um, big changes that took place in the thinking of the global elite at that point. Um, they, they wrote about it in academic articles to, to explain uh, themselves. But from their point of view, the, the assaults on nation states previous, uh, prior to 1970 hadn't worked out very well, didn't get them any traction. And so they, believed that they needed to do some have some kind of a different strategy. The Trilateral Commission was the embodiment of that strategy. It was founded by David Rockefeller, big money guy, of course, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, the brilliant political scientist. I say brilliant, but I disagreed with everything he said almost ever. Um, but Brzezinski was at Columbia University, of all places, at the time that he wrote his seminal book called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. That book basically described technocracy. And he believed and said, wrote, that's where the world is headed. The technotronic era is coming. And his book titled Between Two Ages indicates there's really three ages. There's the one before, the one coming later that's not here yet, and the one that we're in right now. So between two ages implies that there's mm-hmm. three ages he's looking at. And <clears throat> Rockefeller um, picked up on that concept in his book, Between Two Ages, and said, this is the direction that I want to go. Of course, he had the money behind him to do it, but they founded the Trilateral Commission together, co-founded, and they invited a couple hundred people from North America, Japan, and Europe to join. And... Um, their stated objective from day one was to create a new international economic order. That was a the phrase they used. The next year, in 1974, uh, lo and behold, the United Nations passed a general resolution 
called the establishment of the new international economic mm -hmm. order. They used the same phraseology. So that was the first passing of the doctrine to the United Nations. Um, and people have asked, well, how could they do that? I mean, well, why would they do that? Well, to get it to a global basis, which is Rockefeller's interest, you had to have contagion. And Chase Bank didn't have that kind of power, uh, nor, nor would just uh, you know, local politicians. The United Nations was the chosen vehicle to take it to the world, even starting in 1974. And the Rockefeller family had had a very tight relationship with uh, the United Nations from day one. They, they actually donated the land upon which mm -hmm. the United Nations building was built. Um, and there's even a, um, a, a Rockefeller display at the UN building where they praise the Rockefeller family for all of the contributions and the essential support they've had over the decades. And uh, so Rockefeller was very tight with the UN from, from day one, really. Uh, it was not surprising at all that he would use them to kind of begin to, to take this to a global audience um, that wasn't viewed as just him. Uh, because if you know some countries saw Rockefeller coming, they shut the borders and say, "Get the heck out of here! Oh, we don't want smart. you." But the United <laughs> Nations, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, they they were benevolent. You know, oh, they were just doing this for the good. Oh, of the sure, world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, you, uh, you didn't quite make it explicit, and I don't know if all my listeners are aware, but um, you mentioned Chase Bank, right? So at the time, I, I believe David Rockefeller was also head of of Chase Bank. You know, one of the big Wall Street yes, firms. So you know, it's yes, an important uh, thing to to make explicit because you're if you're talking about a new international economic order, it's coming from the head of of a Wall Street bank, who's also incidentally the head of the first you know billionaire family of quote unquote philanthropist who really invented the whole laundering reputation of the evil billionaire into a philanthropist type. You know, that's been used by Bill Gates and Elon Musk and all of these guys. Um, you know, ever yes. and pretty much ever since then, right? So in, anyway, sorry not to interrupt oh, no, too much, but right. um, it's an important point. Mm -hmm. It is. And um, so <clears throat> the the kind of people they invited to join, uh, the, and by the way, this is, you didn't, there was no application to join the Trilateral Commission. Uh, they picked the people. Mm -hmm. They wrote about this. They were open about this. They said they picked the people. So it's a little bit like a fraternity or a sorority where you go to campus or the Council on Foreign Relations, <laughs> to an extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the, the CFR has an application process. So you, you can actually submit an application. Oh. It still gets reviewed, and you could be denied. But the CFR, or excuse me, the Trilateral Commission uh, tapped people, like kind of like universities do with the sorority or fraternity. You, you, go to, you go to pledge week at a university in the freshman year, and you, you kind of get exposed to all the different, uh, you know, you go to parties and you get exposed to the leadership of the various uh, sororities if you're a girl, you know, fraternities if you're a guy. And then you hope, <clears throat> after you meet all these people, you hope somebody comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, come with us, come with us. We want you to join our fraternity or sorority. Uh, that's, uh, the, you know, that tapping process is what the technique that was used by the Trilateral Commission, they would survey the people that they wanted to come in and then they'd go out and tap them and say, we'd like to talk to you. And that's how they built the membership initially. So they had politicians, top, top rated politicians from all three areas. They had top rating bankers. They had top rated um, directors, CEOs, chairmen of, of international or multinational corporations. 
they had media involved and you know like um uh, time magazine uh, newsweek uh, i'm thinking uh doubt the, the um uh, wall street journal was represented you know the biggies <clears throat> and they had a bunch of law firms also that uh, big international legal firms um kind of it was kind of a toolkit for their new international economic order and um they took after this <clears throat> in semi-secret secrecy um they they weren't um uh they weren't exclusive, like for instance, the Skull and Bones at Yale, the club that, you know, where they met in private, underground, locked doors, all that kind of stuff. It wasn't quite like that, but we were able to get a hold of the papers that they wrote internally. They had a magazine called the Triangle Papers, and we we were able to get all that stuff. And and then their academics, like Richard Gardner, he wrote in magazines like like the Foreign Affairs magazine that's part of the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, so there was a lot of material we could get a hold of to see what they were thinking, what they were doing, you know, direction they were heading. And this was new for Rockefeller. Uh, I just, just want to point that out again, circling back to the thought that that's where modern globalization started. Um, it really was where it started. Uh, and, you know, this was, this was new thinking. Um, Richard Gardner, in particular, uh, wrote a uh, a paper for the uh, Foreign Affairs where he said that the old-fashioned frontal assault was not working, and that they needed a new a new path. He called it the he called it an end run around national sovereignty. <laughs> like, oh, great! Huh. So we've had that. I mean, we've you know we can look back and see that there's yes, there's been an end run around national sovereignty all these years, death by a thousand cuts. And it's been very effective for for the for the globalists to, to 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 approach it this way, and of course the United Nations has been instrumental in it, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that more. Detail. Sure, yeah. Well, just to foreshadow, um, what I wanted to bring up later, you know, you were sort of talking how this uh, union with the you know, the international economic order came from the Rockefellers Trilateral Commission. Rockefeller is a banker at the time, and now uh, for the the net zero era, the UN backed. Banker Alliance is what's leading the current, uh, quote unquote, green plan uh, to transform the global uh, financial system under the guise of climate change. They're called uh, GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for for net zero. Um, so it's definitely a banker's thing still to this day uh, under the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the auspices of the, of the United Nations. Um, but bef- before we get there, I wanted to talk about, um, something else that was going on with some of these same groups uh, around the time the trilateral commission was created and, and, yeah. and all of this, uh, um, these activities going on in the early seventies uh, or so, uh, because that also was uh, marked the U uh, S government uh, sort of uh, mm-hmm. pivot towards China to an extent uh, you have like the, mm-hmm. the opening of China, the next administration, Kissinger, uh, Kissinger, yes. of course, uh, most people are probably aware that he has a very long standing and cozy relationship with the Rockefellers. Um, and, uh, you know, lo and behold, a lot of people argue today that China has uh, since then developed into the first technate 
Um, so what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, uh, some of these groups role in the rise of China and how do you see um, some of what's going on with, with China today and this, this discussion of the, uh, the multipolar uh, world order that's being promoted by, um, you know, part of the establishment, but also even within alternative and independent media. Yes, yeah. I think you're on the right track with this, uh, Whitney, to understand what's happened in China. Um, most people miss this. I'm sure you're probably aware of that, but most people do miss it. And um, when uh, when China was reinducted back into the world stage, it, it was in, in particular by 1976, uh, this event took place where officially China was welcomed back into the world stage. Before that, it looked like North Korea. It was a train wreck. They had no economic system. They were the people were starving. A horrible place to live. Very difficult. And uh, of course, Henry Kissinger was the first. Uh, what do I want to say? Uh, I hate to call him a statesman, but he's the first, you know, politician to go to China to talk about to talk to China about coming back when it was patently illegal to. Uh, to make such a trip, but he did it anyway under Nixon. And but by the time 1976 rolled around, the uh, the Carter administration, Jimmy Carter administration, had been completely infiltrated by members of the Trilateral Commission. Both Carter and Mondale were members. Zbigniew Brzezinski was immediately chosen to be the um, uh, National Security Advisor, and the cabinet, uh, Carter's cabinet, had been stuffed with members of the Trilateral Commission. At one point, all but one member were members of the Trilateral Commission, which has just never happened in history, I don't think, where one group so heavily dominated an administration. But uh, history now shows very clearly, uh, and it, with great praise, that it was Zbigniew Brzezinski who brought Deng Xiaoping to the United States to wine him and dine him and welcome him back into the global fold. Um, and there's lots of articles that can be easily uncovered on Brzezinski's relationship with Deng and how happy he was to bring him back in because here you had a billion plus people who with a, it was a blank slate. It literally is like a blank chalkboard. You could do anything you wanted to do with it. And we know now what, the, you know, we call it the economic miracle that took place in, in China. Well, so go back to 1976, there was no economic miracle. It was just a, uh, it was a swamp that, uh, that, you know, just had no form to it whatsoever. So the question arises, did, did Brzezinski and crew teach Deng Xiaoping and his minions about free market economics and capitalism? Or could it be possible that he taught them about technocracy? Well, if you read Brzezinski's book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, uh, you would see that what Brzezinski needed was a testing ground, a test bed, if you will, to prove his political theories. It's not a political system, it's an economic system, but uh, he was a political scientist, so we'll just leave it at that. But um, China represented that kind of fertile soil for Brzezinski to test out the principles of technocracy to see if they would really work in practice. And I'm, I'm sure he was confident that they would. But David Rockefeller also loved China. He loved China all the way through its communist days as well. You know, going back before mm -hmm. that, the Rockefeller family had a deep relationship with China. So the, both of them were on the same page there, but they did not teach them the principles of free market economics. They taught them the principles of technocracy. And the evidence of that uh, 
fortunately we have some, was a Time Magazine article that was written, it's called, oddly enough, it was called The Revenge of the Nerds. The title had nothing to do with the content of the story, <laughs> but I think it was about 2000, uh, I think it was the year 2000, the story came out in Time Magazine, that talked about how China had become a technocracy, just flat out stated it. In context, they went back and talked about 1932 and club diversity and, you know, a whole nine yards about the history of technocracy and how China had become a model of historic technocracy in real living time uh, in the year, by the year 2000. <clears throat> and today, China follows, continues to follow that same, that same model. So in a very real sense, China has, China became a technocracy. Um, most of its leadership in the year 2000 were scientists and engineers. How they got there appointed uh, to run things, almost immaterial, but that they, they were there and they did run things. Um, and we see them exporting their ideology to the rest of the world now. They've, you know, while we receded from South America and Africa, they have aggressed into those uh, areas and uh, they've virtually taken over, oh gosh, so many critical projects in countries in, in Africa and South America um, that it's not even funny. So, you know, they, Everywhere they go, they leave the imprint of technocracy, not of, not of any other political system that would be good for the people. It's always this uh, scientifically engineered society. Well, it's good um, for the power elite of, of any country where they go and, and spread this around. But I, I um, yes. would like to um, <clears throat> uh, say that I think a lot of this, you know, the rise of China and, and all of that isn't just necessarily coming from uh, China, in my view, I think it's definitely been something uh, that's been planned and guided by some of these these actors in the West, some of whom we've we've been yes. talking about, and others um, we haven't been. And sort of this this planned, uh, I guess you could say, to use you know modern technological uh, jargon, sort of a yes. planned obsolescence of the West and the Western Empire, um, and sort yes. of have yes. the the rise of Eurasia sort of aided and abetted by by these particular groups that wanted to usher in an, an era of global technocracy. Yes. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. And my um, my former co-author, Anthony Sutton, had written extensively about the transfer of technology, for instance, from the West to the East, uh, mostly to Russia and uh, then to Nazi Germany, but now to China. If he was alive long enough, he would have written a book about that, I'm sure, uh, the transfer of technology to China. One interesting confirmation of what you what you say here is um, I'm, I'm going to bring up the engineering company by the name of Bechtel Engineering. It's the largest mm -hmm. engineering company in the world, and it's private. Um, the head of Bechtel at the time, um, as I remember, his name was Casper Weinberger, was also a member of the Trial Outer Commission. And <clears throat> um, Bechtel could pretty much go anywhere it wanted to go and do whatever it wanted to do under the under the radar of the global press because it wasn't a public company. They just had their own ships, they had their own equipment, they could just do anything they wanted. Well, by the time Deng Xiaoping came to uh, Washington to meet with Brzezinski, uh, we, and we found this out later, this is patently illegal, we found this out later that, 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 um, that Bechtel Engineering had already completed 18 major infrastructure projects in China, totally illegal, uh, but they did it, and they, it wasn't that they built factories and stuff, they built infrastructure. Well, what do you need infrastructure for? Well, you, you need infrastructure for economic activity. 
highways, dams, energy, uh, you know, the train, the train tracks, you know, stuff like that. You, you need that infrastructure for economic activity. Subsequently, the buildup of China was accomplished by the same companies that belong to the Trilateral Commission. Almost like 80 to 90% of all economic activity that happened over the next, say, 10, 15 years was a direct result of trilateral-related companies going to China and building things. <laughs> it wasn't China at all. China was just a host for these companies to go and build their stuff. And, of course, we know by the, by the time the 90s came around, that giant sucking sound you know, was, was happening everywhere where industries in America were starting to get sucked dry. And where did they go? They went to mm -hmm. China. And they went to China to enjoy the infrastructure that these other companies had provided, but they had very cheap labor, <laughs> of course, because China didn't charge very much. So, um, you know, you say, well, how much of this was really China? And I just say, not very much. <laughs> You know, they provided the land, they provided the real estate. Well, I think uh, it's hard to exactly quantify, you know, how much would have been the West and how much would have been, you know, uh, of domestic origin. But I think it's it's pretty clear that there was a lot of uh, interest among Western elite in building up China for specific purposes. Totally. Mm -hmm. Totally. And they were the ones that have profited from it. From yeah. Them. So, it, you know, oddly enough, you know, I'm, I'm sure most people know by now I'm, I'm writing a, a book on, on Jeffrey Epstein, but not just Epstein, but, you know, sort of the network that um, allowed him to exist and sort of brought him into an existence. And what I wasn't expecting to find was so much about this topic uh, um, in that story, mm -hmm. um, sort of this um, effort to build up China, but it's definitely woven throughout um, this and um, I don't know. I don't really want to, you know, <laughs> uh, give away the book, but it turns out that that Epstein seemed uh, himself to play a role in this in this transfer um, technology transfer to an, an extent. And lo and behold, he was one of the people put on the Trilateral Commission. Allegedly, David Rockefeller himself appointed him to the board of Rockefeller University. Um, and one of the there's two black books of Epstein's contacts for people that don't know. And one of them, which is the earliest one. Um, it contains David Rockefeller's name and also names and addresses for him and the Trilateral Commission. And uh, mm -hmm. oddly enough, when that book was reported in the press, it didn't get a lot of coverage. And even though, you know, it was sort of put out there, the Rockefeller's name being in it <laughs> or the Trilateral Commission being in it was conveniently um, glossed over uh, pretty much entirely. So uh, not very surprising, but it is something that I think people often uh, fail to to grasp. Uh, and I think a, a main reason for that is that we've been uh, told for so long that there's sort of this adversarial nation state, um, you know, struggle uh, between the U.S. and in China. And there is, you know, aspects of that that are adversarial. But I think, you know, when you when you look at some of this bigger picture stuff, there are, you know, networks of powerful individuals of, of capital um, that have uh, had different motives this whole time. Um, and that has, uh, you know, definitively shaped a lot of what we're seeing now. So, um, yes. and, and I'm sure you've, uh, seen this recently um and we and unlimited hangout actually co-hosted a debate with off guardian sort of uh to this extent about uh, for, for, uh, it was focused more on russia than china but it's about this idea of the multipolar world order as being the answer uh to you know the problems caused by the unilateral 
uh, unipolar, you know, world order of, you know, uh, Western imperialism, right? And that the multipolar world order is basically led by the BRICS countries, which includes Russia and China. Um, and, um, you know, some people have said that is the answer uh, as it's being sold to them. And other people are a little more skeptical of exactly what that would mean, because of course, as described by, by China and Russia, the UN uh, would continue to play a, a major role in, in things like that. So do you have any, any thoughts on, on that question? Well, what I see <clears throat> when I, when I listen to some of the crazy stuff, like uh, what was it? The world, uh, the world conference on governance that took place in Dubai uh, recently. Um, I mean, nobody, nobody listens to this stuff. I, I hate to listen to it because it gives me a headache, but, um, you know, the, <clears throat> these big mucky mucks get together and they, they film everything. And then he, you, you go and look at it later and you find out they had 23 views or something <laughs> to their whole face. Yeah. But what they're talking <laughs> about, <laughs> what they're talking about is the devolution, uh, of national governments all around the world. And this, this has been part of the, uh, if you want to be kind, I guess you could call it the moral hazard that exists for forever. That national governments are anathema to technocracy. They they don't want them. They never did. The only reason they tolerate them is to use them to get their own what the, whatever it is they want. And um, <clears throat> so they talk about decentralization of government and and devolvement of government. And that means that the national government, the power of the national government of any given country is being steadily reduced to the point where they almost will be completely immaterial to, as far as any substantive decisions of the country. We see this in a general sense in Europe with the EU. Uh, all those countries are still there. <clears throat> you can go and visit, uh, you know, Denmark or Switzerland or whatever. Well, yep, that's a country that's, uh, yeah, looks just like it used to. You know, the flag is still the same, that sort of thing. But um, as far as power, uh, the EU has absorbed all of the substantive power that the nation states had, and now they must do what the EU tells them to do. Um, you know, you say, well, who's winning in this situation? Is Are the national governments stronger or weaker? Well, they're clearly they're weaker. And the way the trend is going, there's going to be a time where the EU just would take over if they can, if they can get Get, you know, get people to go along with it, fully take over. <clears throat> and they will call all the shots. They're unelected. They're unaccountable to anyone. And they'll just simply start calling the shots. Well, the same global elite that meet like in Dubai for these big uh, global governance meetings, they, they openly talk about the devolution of government um, <clears throat> and how, uh, you know, it's like what Brzezinski originally said, talked about the nation state being the principal creative force in the world today. Well, or not the, not the uh, principal creative force. Um, the corporations, the, the, the people, you know, they're like at the top of the United Nations, the World Economic Forum. Uh, these are the people that are calling the shots around the world uh, at the expense of the national government in those countries. And the, the movement to, uh, to strip away rights of nation states has been going on for a long time. It's still going on. Um, in a microcosm, by the way, the same thing has happened with property rights around the world. America is a good example of that. Um, if you owned a thousand acre farm, for instance, um, say 30 years ago, you bought it and your family's farming or whatever, <clears throat> you wake up today and you find out that, uh, the certain rights that you had with that property when you bought it are gone. 
you can't, uh, for instance, you might have um, uh, restrictions now on developing that property for, for instance, for housing or for other, you know, commercial activities that you might have wanted to do. And you say, yeah, but I bought that ground and that's my ground. Well, you know, slice by slice, property rights have been sliced off, taken away from you to where you're paying the tax bill still, but they only allow you to do one thing on it, perhaps as farm or ranch or whatever it might be. Uh, but you can't do all these other things. And this has become legendary uh, in, in America, in my opinion, where, where property rights have been stripped away. Even though the form and function of property is still there, yep, it's your name on the title, yep, you have to pay the taxes, yep, et cetera, et cetera, but you can't do what you originally thought you wanted to do with the property. You had those rights when you bought it, you don't have them now. Who took them? Yes, that's the question. And the same thing's happening with nation states. The rights are being stripped away, and you have to say, well, who took them? Well, you know, look no further than this global elite crowd that basically wants to get everything in their own pocket eventually. The property rights issue is kind of interesting because I, I've noticed that countries, um, there seems to be a correlation anyway with the with um, efforts to um, have constitutional conventions, which are about creating new constitutions for nation states, yeah. um, sort of popping mm -hmm. up in countries that had or have existing constitutions with very strong property right protections. So um, yes. I live in Chile and South America. We currently have a constitutional convention that was um, sort of proposed as a solution to the unrest at the end of 2019. And it was sort of manipulated into an ex existence, building off a legitimate um, concerns and, and anger related to the, the Pinochet uh, era because the constitution is from that period of time. Um, but the current people writing the constitution um, or in this convention are, are, are pretty nuts. And there's a lot of debate over the, the property right thing. And that actually is one of the main focuses um, of, of this particular convention, which from its very onset partnered straight away with the United Nations, which is pretty interesting. And Catherine Austin Fitz has been talking um, consider, I, I think she's really one of the few people I've seen talk about it, but apparently more than 20 states in the U.S. have uh, in their national or in their state legislatures have voted to support a constitutional convention in the United States. Right. Um, so that's right. definitely something to keep an eye out on. Um, but uh, because, of course, that's a, an easy way to erode sovereignty is just to rewrite the founding documents um, and, and change the, the constitutions, um, you know, and in, in service to that. Um, that agenda and what's, um, you know, uh, and you talked about the EU as well. It seemed for a long time that that was, you know, the model they were going to try and replicate everywhere to sort of uh, impose some sort of glo uh, stronger global governance system on the world, sort of create these regional blocks. And then when the regional blocks are all there, sort of merge them into a, a global governance um, authority. Um, but it sort of seems like they've... Uh, decided to go a different route. And some people have argued that this new World Health Organization pandemic treaty um, that's in the works and, you know, as as it's being written is going to supersede constitutional authority for the nation states that signed the treaty is sort of a, a way to get to that system without going through the regional block method. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. <clears throat> and, and we have to uh, probably ought to go back to uh, just think about 1992, for instance, originally when Agenda 21 was first formed uh, in Rio de Janeiro, and the whole doctrine of sustainable development uh, and its relationship to global governance. Um, 
leading up to 1992, there was a commission that the United Nations called for called the Brundtland Commission. And it was headed by Gru Harlem Brundtland, who had formerly been the prime minister of Norway. Uh, and before that, the, the environmental minister of Norway. <clears throat> and she headed this commission and essentially wrote the book that came out of it called Our Common Future. Uh, Our Common Future, then Gru Harlem Brundtland, uh, were widely acknowledged by the United Nations itself as uh, being the, the policy input for Agenda 21 and sustainable development. In other words, that was where it was created. That was where the doctrine came from. And she's kind of considered the mother of Agenda 21, if you will, and sustainable development. Well, Gru Harlem Brundtland, when she was headed, heading the United Nations uh, Commission, um, was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And uh, <clears throat> what she was writing was not, was not policy that was derived from some other organization or just off the top of her head. This was Trilateral Commission policy that she had written into our common future that later became Agenda 21. And so this whole concept, you say, well, where does sustainable development come from? Well, as I said, I've argued very pointedly that this is warmed over technocracy from the 1930s. Nothing changed, nothing new. It's just they repackaged it in a way they call it sustainable development, which is politically more politically correct, I suppose. People will accept it more. But that's where Agenda 21 came from. Everything that happened after that, 1992, um, has been slanted towards the Trilateral Commission's original goal to create a new international economic order. What we kind of missed back then, and I, I certainly missed it, that I just didn't, my, my horizon was not, you know, I wasn't off the horizon enough to see what was going on, but um, what actually was happening back then was that the world was being reshuffled where People, you know, well, they used to talk about resources. They used to talk about land and they used to talk about, you know, the forest and stuff like that uh, as being resources. But what nobody really ever considered back then is they also, they also consider you and I as mere resources in the big scheme of things. We're just resources. Mm -hmm. We're not the principles. We're not the people. We're not any way, you know, divinely made or anything else. We're just the resources that can be used as easily as uh, trees in a forest that get cut down or, you know, farm products that get harvested, et cetera. <clears throat> and there was a decided, in 1992, there was a decided, uh, decidedly pointed movement towards protecting the biotech industries in particular in relation to drugs, big pharma and drugs and stuff like that, that all this stuff was was kind of masked, masked in the past by, by, um, by kind of the, the larger greenwashing of, you know, mm -hmm. sustainable development. While people were looking at that, what was really going on under the covers was, was a different story. My, my source for that is a book that was written by Prodigy and Finger in 19, uh, uh, 94 it's called the earth brokers it's a great book if you don't have it you ought to get it the earth brokers and they were original participants in the agenda 21 conference they were the original greens part of the original green crowd environmental crowd that was you know 1960s 1970s and 80s and so on they went to real thinking that there was going to be some substantive talk about development 
And so in good faith, they went and they were, they were principals. They attended all the major meetings and they voted, et cetera. And they came away so disillusioned that they actually wrote this book called The Earth Brokers and they complained because they were also academics and they complained about it. And this is what they complained. I mean, this is an amazing statement from somebody who's not clearly not on our side. Okay. This is, this is their testimony from the other side. <clears throat> they said in their book, they said, we argue that unsaid, that's the UN uh, Conference on Economic Development that sponsored uh, Agenda 21 for the United Nations. They said, we argue that UNSAID has boosted precisely the type of industrial development that is destructive for the environment, the planet, and its inhabitants. We see how, as a result of UNSAID, the rich will get richer, the poor poorer, while more and more of the planet is destroyed in the process. <laughs> that was their eyewitness testimony. But they went on, shockingly, they went on to say this about the Biodiversity Convention, which ran in parallel to Agenda 21. Mm -hmm. Same people, same conference grounds, uh, but just a different thought track going on. Um, they wrote about the Biodiversity Convention. They said, the convention implicitly equates the diversity of life, that is animals and plants, and, and we're part of those animals, right? They believe it, uh, to the diversity of genetic codes. By doing so, diversi diversity becomes, I lost my track here, diversity becomes something modern science can manipulate. It promotes biotechnology as being, quote, essential for the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity. And then they go on and they say the main stake raised by the Biodiversity Convention, this, I don't think they understood the importance of what they said here. The main stake raised by the Biodiversity Convention is the issue of ownership and control over biological diversity. The major concern was protecting the pharmaceutical and emerging biotechnology industries. That's a direct quote. That's mm -hmm. just stunning. It, it's not that it was a minor stake. They, you know, they didn't say, well, there were some people talking about this. They say it's the main stake yeah. raised by the biodiversity convention. And here we're talking, here they're talking about protecting the pharmaceutical and the emerging biotechnology industries. Well, who's raising havoc with the world right now? Right. Other than groups like the World Health Organization trying to take over the whole planet by sticking a needle in your arm with messenger RNA and or DNA to supposedly fight a virus, but it's not fighting a virus. So what the heck is it really doing? Well, you know, now we're on what booster shot number four and they're still not done. Yeah. And even in India now, a biotech company in India has introduced an actual DNA vaccine that goes under the skin, not in the muscle that actually will change your DNA. And so, you know, you look back historically to 1992 and you say, what really, what really happened there? Well, everything is happening today seems to be connected to that 1992 biodiversity convention. And so when, when they said biodiversity, every, every, most everybody else thought, oh, it's the forest, stupid, you know, or it's no, it's, uh, uh you know, it's, uh, the number of species on the, you know, Savannah and Africa or whatever. What we want to see those species. Well, how most sane normal people think about biodiversity. And yeah, and they use normal that. people mm -hmm. think <laughs> that's right. They changed the definition. Well, they, they they've been doing that for years, right? I mean, even with COVID, they've changed the definition yes. of what a vaccine is and, and all of all of this yes. stuff um to fit their agenda. And they've changed words essentially like biodiversity to twist them to mean something else that's convenient for them while people go on continuing to think about the conventional definition. 
Um, and this is also true with sustainable development. I mean, you could argue that when the UN says sustainable development, it's only really sustainable for the power elite. <laughs> it's 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 creating yes. a, a, a system, developing a system that sustains the power elite forever at your expense and the expense of many other things. And I think you touched on a really um, important point about how everything, including human beings, um, are viewed as resources here. And if you go and you look through a lot of the the green agenda stuff um, from the UN or the World Economic Forum or the World Wildlife Fund um, and some of these other groups, there is a major effort uh, to financialize uh, all of those resources. And not just nature, because I've written about that with like the natural asset companies uh, that are corporations, the NACs that they uh, <laughs> set up last year um, mm -hmm. with um, the Rockefeller Foundation. And that was all about, you know, fi financializing natural resources, uh, natural capital, as they call it. But if you look at these same networks, it's not there. They have um, all these uh, algorithms and, and methodologies, which are really googly guck at the end of the day. Because um, they're based on all these weird assumptions that, like, you can't, it's not actually like um, scientific, in my opinion. It's like pseudoscience, a lot of it. And my, uh, that's how I see it. But anyway, it's, it's natural capital, but it's also human capital and social capital, yes. like social interactions between human beings or the interactions that humans have with nature. All of that is viewed as, is viewed as capital. And should be financialized. And really, since the natural asset corporation thing took off last year, I mean, this has really just been exploding and a lot of people haven't um, really seen it because it's not being covered. But there's also, you know, uh, the natural asset corporation is a way to securitize uh, natural resources. But now uh, Canada's government and the UK government with um, a bunch of uh, private sector groups and the private sector groups that are part of it. Sorry, but I'm mm -hmm. sort of blanking on them. They just launched an alliance uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but like Ocean Risk Something Something Alliance. I don't know. But anyway, that's to securitize the world's oceans uh, now. Right. And it's just um, taking off at, at a really extreme speed. And when you look at it that way, it, it's really hard not to see it as, you know, going back to this historic root of technocracy, which had so, which had so much focus on controlling ener energy usage and controlling human activity, viewing humans as a resource, along with all the other things that have conventionally been seen as resources, i.e. natural resources and, and all of that. Um, and, and this is... Um, it, it's just really stunning to see it uh, when you when you take the time to step back and look at the big picture. And I I really feel like people are neglecting to look at this big uh, all of this stuff going on under the the greenwashing layer uh, because you know you mentioned greenwashing and it it's amazing to think about how effective the greenwashing effort um, has been because you have so many people on the left or the progressive left that are cheering for all this stuff, the Green New Deal and not what have you, but it's been made by like the bankers who they supposedly don't like, <laughs> right? Um, who are trying to financialize literally everything uh, and, they're, and they're cheering it on just because the right buzzword, they've been trained to, to think that these buzzwords mean uh, something uh, else than what they actually <laughs> mean. <clears throat> yes, it, it's really important to note that for all of the various uh, fear-mongering uh, narratives that have been put forth like you know the world is going to heat up we're all going to the seas are going to rise we're all going to die sort of thing <clears throat> all of these uh various techniques that are being used to put fear into people only have one there's there's only one offer put on the plate to solve whatever problem yeah. it is and that is 
sustainable development. That's the only alternative that's ever, ever offered. You know, you got, you say global warming, what's the answer? Sustainable development. Um, you've got uh, indigenous, blah, 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 blight, whatever. What's the, you know, what's the answer? Sustainable development. Well, <clears throat> how come there's never a plan B? Well, that's part of the plan. There is no plan B. They are only interested in promoting sustainable development as an economic system. Mm -hmm. This has always been the plan. And I, uh, some of the, some of the, the, the logic I would put behind that is going back to David Rockefeller in 1973. Rockefeller had just watched, not orchestrated, the decoupling of the dollar from gold. Fiat currencies were given life at, at that point in time where there was no check or balance on how much money could ultimately be created by a fiat currency system. Rockefeller, the money guy, fully knew, fully well knew, that there would come a day when all the currency, all the fiat currencies of the world would simply burn up and be useless to control the economic system. He knew that. I mean, if, if you're a banker, if you're math, if you have anybody with, with a, you know, with a math understanding working for you, they would tell you there's going to be a day it's, it's an absolute mathematical certainty when your money will run out. So what would a guy like Rockefeller do? The Rockefeller family always been monopoly oriented people. They love monopolies. They hate competition. That goes all the way yeah. back to the <laughs> late 1800s, mm -hmm. right? So what, what's, what's a guy, that, what's an oligarch to do? Well, how about list forget money and go after the resources directly? And that's exactly what the plan was for the, from the Trilateral Commission from day one was to get the resources of the world into their hands and out of yours and my hands and out of the hands of the nation states. Get the resources because if you own all the resources, it doesn't matter what type of a financial system you lay over the top of it. It could be, it could be be beads or notches and sticks. I mean, it just doesn't matter if you got the resources and everybody else wants them, you can do whatever you want to do. That was the plan from the get-go, and that's been the plan ever since. In the United Nations and within nations that they've worked, you see the steady progression of, of removing resources from public domain and putting it and locking it up, at least locking it up into some type of a global common trust where they can have access to it, but nobody else can. And you know, when when Klaus Schwab can stand up and say, you will by 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy. You have to just consider what's going on in his mind when he says you'll own nothing. Well, somebody has to own the stuff, right? I mean, if it exists in time and space, somebody has to own it to put, you know, say, well, that's mine. I'm going to take it and move it over here to somewhere else. Well, yeah. Okay. You'll own nothing. Somebody's going to own it and it's going to be them. Yeah. A stakeholder. In their mind, they think mm -hmm. it's going to be them and they and their stakeholder buddies will run everything and everybody else will be left on the outside. This is why many people look at this and they call it neo-feudalism yeah. mm -hmm. coming back. That's exactly what it is. They will own everything and the rest of us will be squatters on the back 40 <laughs> trying to eke out a living yeah. and hope that we stay in the good graces of, uh, of our master, that they don't decide to kill our family and you know throw us off the land. This is the nefarious plot. Well, so there's the um, issue then here of, you know, how sustainable development is about controlling energy usage. It's about controlling human and economic activity. Um, but when you're talking about, you know, restricted, like, like carbon rationing, rationing energy to people, um, people have also noted that this may also be used to control human numbers. Um, and, you know, talking about just the Rockefeller family that we've been 
talking about for a while, of course. Um, their other um, uh, love, I guess you could call it, besides um, technocracy and global governance, uh, at, at least for a long time openly, uh, back in the earlier days, was also uh, eugenics. So uh, do you see any sort of eugenics connection to technocracy? Totally. It, it's like, this is, you know, when they talk about social engineering, the science of social engineering, when you get right down to it, that, that has eugenics written all over it. And, you know, they've, they've made it more sophisticated because now we have gene editing technology. That you can just change stuff right in place. Whereas the eugenics movement didn't have those tools. They figured the only way you could do it was to kill off the people that didn't meet your criteria. <laughs> so, you know, uh, Hitler got rid of Jews, blacks, gypsies, and invalids with impunity. He didn't care. He said, well, we don't want them in the gene pool, so let's just get rid of them. <laughs> and, you know, this, the, the eugenics movement has, has just kind of been that way ever since. So you need to kill people. Now you can edit in place. You can edit DNA in place. So that if instead of killing somebody, well, you can just turn off their reproductive switch so they don't reproduce anymore. And one generation, they're gone. Um, I like to use a quotation from the uh, chief medical officer of Moderna, which has been the mm -hmm. leading drug company to produce messenger RNA. His name is Tal Zaks, Z as in zebra, A-K-S. Mm -hmm. But he says, and this is a direct quote from his little mouth. <laughs> he says... We are actually hacking the software of life. We think about it as an operating system. So if you could actually change that, if you could introduce a line of code or change the line of code, it turns out it has produced profound implications for everything. This is the guy that developed the, the Moderna injection. Mm -hmm. It's like the software of life. You can hack it. That's what you're doing. You're going to change my genetic code so that it becomes more like what you want it to be instead of what I like it to be. Well, <clears throat> this is this is flat out eugenics in the 21st century. That's one reason, by the way, that Bill Gates is just so gung ho on all this stuff is because uh, he and his family have been eugenicists from days of old, mm -hmm. but now being you know Joe Computer Guy, who understands what Tal Zax is saying. Man, that's you know somebody like Gates is going to say, well, that's that's right in my wheelhouse, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I know how to, I know about code, I know about software, and I know that we can hack the human condition. And let's just go ahead and do that, and let's recreate humanity in our own eyes, you know, in our own image. And it's like, oh no, no, <laughs> let's not let's not do that. <laughs> But they are doing right. it right now. They have the needle now has been put into how many billions of people around the planet? I don't know, but a bunch. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I did a pretty exhaustive investigation of, of Moderna uh, before COVID as well. And I I really wonder, um, you know, this this talking point, uh, hacking the software of life has been around as long as Moderna has been around. Right. And arguably even before. Mm -hmm. um, and but yes. they could never take a product to market until COVID. You know, they were trying to, quote unquote, hack the software of life to do all sorts of stuff. And it didn't work. Yes. You know, so, you know, I sort of think there's a lot of lofty rhetoric 
And sometimes it's very uh, messianic or religious sounding rhetoric around this stuff and about the, the great revolutionary changes they're going to bring, but they can only change certain things or only do certain things and, and have it work to, you know, a certain extent, you know, even though they claim technological superiority, it's not at the level that they like to claim it is. Um, and that's not just for genetic editing. I think that's also true for artificial intelligence. And a lot of other things yes. that are sort of in this in the same um, wheelhouse. Uh, so you know, one one wonders exactly. You know, was there a plan to you know an ulterior motive, and they knew exactly what these shots would do to people um, beyond you know stuff like the problems they knew existed with them before COVID, like toxicity to the liver um, and other stuff with like the nanolipid particle. A delivery system, you know, was there like a, a other genetic thing put in there and they knew exactly what would happen? I think it's, you know, it, more of an experiment for them too, because I don't think they exactly uh, have the type of extreme control over what happens post-injection that they, that they like to claim um, that they do. And you see this with stuff like CRISPR, the, the DNA, which I think mRNA technology, getting people normalized to that is ultimately a, a segue to get people normalized to something like CRISPR, which is what they've bet the farm on when it comes to biotech um, about, you know, right. in vivo uh, DNA editing. Um, but more and more studies come out every year showing that CRISPR is incredibly imprecise. It causes a considerable amount of genetic damage for everything it, you know, successfully changes. Um, so the question is, you know, what are you going to end up with? You know, okay, you were able to change this gene and that gene, but uh, the person has like 12 tumors because of it or something like that, you know? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I would just, I fully agree with you that their expectations are way beyond reality and they always have been. And I, that's one of the things I think that, that the earth brokers saw back in 1994 when they said, uh, when they talked about the rich get richer, the poor, poorer, and, and then they go on to say, while more and more of the planet is destroyed in the process. I think they realized even then that these people were crackpots. They were, they were touting stuff that just wasn't going to happen the way they touted it just is a, it's a, it's a propaganda pitch. If anything, they're trying to justify their existence or whatever. Artificial intelligence is a, is a perfect example. Is it really artificial intelligence? Will we, you know, will such a computer program ever achieve sentience? No, in my opinion, no, never. Um, but you know, will, will they be able to hack the human body to where they can create humanity 2.0 like Klaus Schwab talks about? No, I don't think that's ever going to happen. What they will do, is they will destroy the human condition before they do anything constructive with yeah. it because their technologies are just misguided. They are misguided. They, and many of them think they got these wonderful tools in their hands, but they don't know how to use them. It's like giving a two year old a gun and saying, here, go have some fun out in the street. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, you know, oh, look, I got a gun. I can do whatever I want. Well, these people are way overinflated in their expectations on what they can do. And I, that's why we see failure after failure after failure failure. And, um, but that doesn't deter them apparently because they just keep going. So when somebody like a, a towel, Zach says something like this at, at first blush, you can say, well, ha ha ha, you know, that's funny. Uh, what a, what a, what a poor misguided human. But the problem is somebody like Tal Zach's has a wherewithal to implement his crazy ideas <laughs> and to try, or at least to try yeah. to implement and partnerships right? with and DARPA to, and the and Bill to, and Melinda Gates foundation and a bunch exactly. of other group. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly you know you you and i could we could sit down in a, in a quiet room and we could talk about some of the craziest things i'm sure and you know they're just that the rest of the world would think man if, if anybody ever heard what we're talking about they would probably you know shoot us or something on the spot but we could we could be quietly talking in the back room maybe with a couple other people <clears throat> and we're talking about all kinds of radical ideas and stuff that you know wow you didn't think about this and and it would just be talk right it's just talk and people talk all the time there's nothing wrong with talking that's kind of how humans have you know humanity has advanced in a sense because we can talk about things but when you when you're talking about evil type things or crazy type things and then all of a sudden it ceases to become talk because you have the money or the wherewithal to actually do what you're talking about now all of a sudden it should be in the public arena where the public can, can weigh in on what you're just about to do and you know you talk about like uh, like for instance a conspiracy to rob a bank somebody can sit down if you're if you're an author if you're a, a mystery writer you can sit down with somebody and figure out what's the perfect way to rob a bank and you can talk about that for for forever developing your script i just want to know how to rob a bank <clears throat> uh, don't search google because they'll trap your search and oh that guy's gonna rob a bank over there but you could talk about robbing a bank but the very minute that you secure a blueprint of a real bank and you hire a getaway driver <laughs> You have crossed the line. <laughs> you, you know, now you're implementing your conspiracy, if you will. And now it's a crime. Even if you never actually robbed the bank, conspiracy to commit a crime is a crime. And, you know, these people have, have talked about all this stuff uh, along the way, which I would say on one hand, okay, talk about it. I don't care. But if you get the wherewithal to where you're going to do what you're going to say to do without anybody else's input, stop cold right there. You need to put it on the table and we need to discuss it before you go do it. They haven't gone through this, that, that, that methodology. They haven't done that. They've just brought it to the table, said, this is it. We're going to do this. Boom. And so they bring their billions of dollars behind them. They bring their big companies. They bring the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and all the rest of them. Uh, the welcome trust they all come and say this is what we're going to do uh okay you know it's like okay yeah this is what we're going to do and everybody just, just kind of responded at first and said oh okay uh great but they don't have any idea of what the plan really is and these people in my opinion many of them are just absolutely off the rails crazy um they should never be implementing what they're talking about yeah. without having full public vetting. Well, you know, well, there's the issue, right? You vet it publicly and people are like, hey, you're crazy. No. I mean, I think they know that that's why, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's well, a system yes, that works right. for them, that's, you know, and it, it entrenches yes. all the stuff people are tired of and they're manufacturing consent yes. among the people trying to tell them that the solution to all of the the crap people are angry about right now is more of the same, yeah. but dressed up differently and even worse, actually, to the yeah. point of neo-feudalism. Yeah. You're unhappy about existing e economic equality? Let's create a new economic yeah. system, but it will make things more unequal, and then you will never be able to challenge it. You know, <laughs> like it's a, uh, people yes. would be like, no thanks, um, if it was yes. publicly yes. vetted. Um, Exactly. Yeah, so I think it it's it would be interesting now to turn to the question of um, you know, uh we've sort of brought it up a couple times. Um, 
you know, why do these people do what they're doing? You know, what, what is this craziness? <laughs> you know, you know, you and I, uh, and plenty of other people think these guys are crazy. You talked about how, um, you sort of saw uh, earlier on that you sort of saw it as, uh, at least in the early technocratic movement is fueled by egoism. Um, but there's also sort of a religious component to all of this in a sense oh, from the yes. people that are, um, you know, trying to um, create this type of society. Um, you've referred to it as scientism. Uh, can you explain a little bit, a little bit about scientism and the role it plays here? <clears throat> well, I can. Um, scientism uh, isn't a, isn't a very popular term today. I guess you know people are not really familiar with it. But back in the mid uh, 1900s, there was. Uh, a, a, very, a very large body of work, the literature that was done by very, top, you know, top thinkers on scientism because it was formalized. It was a formalized idea at that point that people saw through as just being crackpot. And for instance, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, a, a number of essays and a couple of books on scientism. F.A. Hayek was a big critic of scientism. They were not critics of science, but only scientism. <clears throat> and scientism is the idea uh, that science is the ultimate and only path to knowledge and wisdom, um, and that the spiritual realm is a mirage. This is what scientism, uh, you know, presents. Um, so I don't criticize science per se. I love science, actually, the, the natural sciences, etc. But scientism is an abuse is an abuse of science. And uh, C.S. Lewis actually wrote a book called. Um, the um, uh, and I'm trying to think now that skips my mind. I, I'm, I'm you're contagious. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, called the magician's twin. That's mm -hmm. what it was called. And he likened the scientism to to have a kind of an unexpected twinship with magic. And uh, you know, you say, well, okay, so where did this crazy idea start from? It, it's traced directly back to a French philosopher. Um, in the early 1800s by the name of uh, Henri de Saint-Simon. Um, and he proposed this idea, the idea of scientism. Um, and it, it stuck over the years, it grew and it kind of, you know, came in and out of favor. But what he wrote originally was a scientist, my dear friends, is a man who foresees it is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful. And the scientists are superior to all other men. Uh, that's a loaded statement, in my opinion. Uh, superior to all of their men, able to predict they're like prophets or what? Well, <laughs> the, um, uh, the, the doctrine that he fleshed out from there said that scientism <clears throat> needs to have a priesthood. And so both St. Simon and his primary disciple, August Comte, who, by the way, was the father of social sciences, uh, they promoted a priesthood of scientists and engineers to administer and uh, administrate science on society. And um, it became a religion as a result. It has, you know, here you have the God of science, you have a priesthood, and it, it turns into a religion that worships science and the scientific method exclusive of other, of all other competing religions, including the Bible and ethics and morality and other religious systems as well. And it predicts the future. This is important too. It predicts the future, and it requires a priesthood to declare its truth to the ignorant masses. And so, <clears throat> you know, we look at somebody like Anthony Fauci, 
and we say that's a, a curious little man um <laughs> always standing behind the president right with his arms folded looking down his nose and he is administrating science if you will he's a high priest in one sense of science and science is infallible in his mind it's infallible there was that 60-minute interview with uh chuck todd and fauci last year and fauci said uh they were talking about Fauci's being attacked, right? Because people actually say negative things about him. But he said, it's very dangerous, Chuck, because a lot of what you're seeing as attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Because all of the things I've spoken about consistently from the very beginning have been fundamentally based on science. That's his God. Sometimes those things were inconvenient truths for people, and there was pushback against me. So if you're trying to get at me as a public health official and scientist, you're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you are attacking science. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, <clears throat> it was a very bizarre you know, interview. I, uh, I recall it as well. But, you know, it, <laughs> that example goes to show that, you know, science has come to mean different thing to different people. And in worshipers of scientism, science gets away from the roots of science entirely, where it's, you know, op uh, constantly open to inquiry and constantly evolving. It becomes yes. um, something that is rigid and unmovable, and it becomes like religious dogma um, that, you know, cloaks itself as science, essentially. <clears throat> exactly. It's a, it's, it's a fraudulent misuse of science uh and isn't that true of so many other things that we've been mm -hmm. talking about yeah. already today it just you know it has some good intention maybe on the surface but then you look deeper and you say man this is crack one of the markers of scientism which we see everywhere is that it rejects any inquiry that does not agree with it so the likes of the of the fauci world and the world health organization world you don't dare say anything against their narrative or you will be crushed and mm -hmm. um, you'll be canceled, you'll be rejected, you'll be excluded, whatever the case. You might be fired from your job if you're a university professor. And another important marker is it demands acceptance by non-scientists. This, this, we see this everywhere today. For instance, there's, there's one debate going on with legitimate scientists and you know they're pushing back against this whole narrative that have lost their seat at the table because they've been excluded. So there, there's the professional community. But, for the non-scientists that, I don't know about you, but that would include me, I'm not a scientist, um, they demand that you accept whatever they say because they are the scientist after all, and you're not. So shut up, sit down, and just let us fill your mind with what we see as being the truth. This is a dangerous proposition mm -hmm. for, for, mental, for any type of mental stability. This is just absolutely insane. And certainly this is not science. Science has always been predicated on open debate right you know open and fair debate right science um, is supposed to, to be to how one discovers the truth right and now it's being used yes. as a way to rigidly establish the truth um upon people as opposed to a way to like discover yes. truth and it's really doing what you know yes. the the religions of old that they're ostensibly uh responding to you know it's um it's just more of the same but you know even more dangerous i guess you could say because it's it's cloaking itself as as in in a method of open what most people would consider to be, you know, open inquiry what science really is like you were referring to but they've you know just like then with sustainable development and all of these other terms, they they have changed 
in for practical purposes what it really means and they're selling it as something else so rule by science people are like well science is open debate and inquiry and all this stuff that doesn't sound so bad but that's not what they're actually saying right no they're not and you know today for instance if you <clears throat> if you say anything negative against uh we'll pick a topic say the green new deal uh, which is a greenwashing project here mm -hmm. in america um, <clears throat> you were attacked immediately and, and, uh, you know, shamed and vilified as being an idiot and, um, you know, called a bunch of names and, you know, trolls come after you and whatever. Yeah. And you're just the worst person in the whole world. Well, it's like, well, Hey, I just asked a question, you know, like why, you know, why, why is alternative energy not really working out for a lot of people today? You know, well, you can't ask those questions. You can't ask that question, much less discuss it because it does work out you idiot don't you know that yeah. uh, alternative energy is a wave of the future we have to kill the nasty old fossil fuel stuff yeah by so, mining and destroying know. the andes and the african continent to pull out more lithium and cobalt so we can <laughs> make all the infrastructure <laughs> I, I for green energy it, it, uh, and it, leave latin right. america and africa barren wastelands um you know it's it's whatever okay <laughs> well you just don't dare talk about it right i mean in their mind you're a sitting duck. You're a target. You become a target immediately to be eliminated. And this, this, this kind of reveals the attitude that the technocrats and, and this spills over into the transhuman mind as well. <clears throat> they look at humanity as just another animal, just another resource to be managed. Yep. And the fact that people can think for themselves for the most part is just unacceptable to them. They want to be the managers of the herd and they look at you as the herd. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's a long, uh, standing point of view of, um, a lot of elite yeah. circles towards the masses. Um, for people that want to look at this at another angle, you know, you can look at, um, Edward Bernays, the father of propaganda and public relations. He invented both <laughs> one for government, one for corporations. Yes. It's basically the same, yeah. same thing at the end of uh, the day. And uh, there's the BBC documentary series, a century of the self sort of exploring that and how the elite that Bernays worked for basically viewed, um, you know, the human masses as an uncontrolled, irrational herd and how to use different techniques to control their behavior, you know, a different um, way of tackling um, what they view as the same problem. But, you know, what, what you just mentioned is, you know, sort of uh, rolls into that too. Um, so now it seems like, at least it seems to have been announced anyway, um, that scientism has now become the religion of dataism, if we are to believe, um, of course, one of my favorite people, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, uh, that's obvious sarcasm uh, for people that aren't aware I really, um, I, I strongly dislike him. Um, I'll <laughs> uh, just leave it there. Um, but he r has written a new book, which I know uh, you mentioned you are reading. And he also has uh, over um, the past couple years um, been talking about um, uh, some of these uh, things that we've touched on. He, I think, views himself sort of as a, as a prophet of this religion quote-unquote religion. Mm -hmm. um, but he, in 2016, started talking about something called dataism. And he says, uh, dataism venerates neither gods nor man. It worships data. From a dataist perspective, we may interpret the entire human species as a single data processing system with individual humans serving as its chips. 
Um, and this is basically what we've been talking about, you know, viewing humans um, uh, as resources is just like, you know, uh, a rock or minerals or, you know, any other sort of natural resource. Um, but here it's applying it specifically to, um, you know, sort of this, this uh, technocratic transhumanist sort of view um, that there is this, uh, and, and it's definitely very religious in its overtones. And um, I'll, I'll throw a couple more quotes at you from this article because I found it um, very astounding, um, some of the things that it says. So basically, he, um, he says, dataism too began as a neuroscientific theory like capitalism, but it is now mutating into a religion that claims to determine right and wrong. The supreme value of this new religion is information flow. If life is the movement of information, and if we think that life is good, it follows that we should extend, deepen, and spread the flow of information in the universe. Um, so, you know, I, I think people like you and me would argue that, you know, it's not information, it's consciousness or something else that's flowing there. Um, but anyway, he boils that down to information. So anyway, um, he continues, according to dataism, human experiences are not sacred and Homo sapiens isn't the apex of creation. Um, humans are merely tools for creating the internet of all things, which may eventually spread out from planet Earth to cover the whole galaxy and even the whole universe. This cosmic data processing system would be like God. It will be everywhere and will control everything and humans are destined to merge into it. And then he, um, uh, uh, this is the last one I'll read for now. Uh, dataism isn't limited to idle prophecies like every religion. It has its practical commandments. First and foremost, a dataist ought to maximize data flow by connecting to more and more media and producing and consuming more and more information. Like other successful religions, dataism is also missionary. Its second commandment is to connect everything to the system, including heretics who don't want to be connected. Your thoughts? <laughs> 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 There's a lot there, but I mean, it's uh, it's insidious sounding at the I very know. least. Um, <laughs> this hint that you'll be connected uh, whether you want to be or not. And this is, you know, well before the Great Reset, before transhumanism and all, all of this stuff was on people's radar. Um, but it's it's very compelling <clears throat> uh, in terms of uh, what we've been talking about to see, you know, uh, what he's talking about here sort of in the larger context, right? You know, this isn't a, a, a totally novel idea that Harari came up with. This is something that has been uh, built upon a very long existing foundation of scientism of technocracy and and more mm -hmm. mm. yes and data <clears throat> data has always been at the center of technocracy and the more there there's uh, to a technocrat mind there's never such a thing as not enough uh, as too much data you know they there's always a little bit more they have to have so that's why you see <clears throat> you see the push for the internet of things and then it was called the internet of bodies is added into then you have the internet of everything yes. And you have sensors now that are being embedded in human bodies, uh, either wearable or internal, et cetera. Everything is being censored. They're, uh, they're putting sensors in the wastewater, the sewer systems, uh, to find out what people are passing through their systems. And um, <clears throat> everywhere you can imagine that a sensor could be, they're putting a sensor. Yeah. 
and this is necessary to run the machine the 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 the, the um uh the society that they envision is like a machine in order to run a machine you have to monitor it how can you how can you run a factory or with full of machines if you don't monitor what's going on in that factory well this is their this is their mentality so everything is being connected but when you when you know when you kind of make that that quantum leap if i could dare use that phrase to jump from just simply having sensors of things collecting data to the point where it turns into a religion where all of a sudden it starts to look like it has qualities of god like like omniscience knowing everything like omnipresence being everywhere like being all powerful able to control everything uh that is contributing the data right and and the the, the truism to a technocrat is that uh, when you collect data from a source, whatever that source is, you have control over that source of the data by means of having the data in the first place. Um, so the more they collect data from from planet Earth, from humanity, from all the things going on here, animate and inanimate, you can take that out to the universe philosophically and say, well, the universe is really just one big expression of data. And some people for a long time have said, for instance, we're all living in a, we're living in a, in a hologram, a simulation simulation. And really we're just part of somebody else's experiment or something. Um, it's really, you know, that, that kind of talk in my opinion is people look at their navel for too long and they get lost <laughs> and they lost in their, <laughs> in their own, in their own thinking. But, um, uh, but again, you know what he what he come up with when they come up with these crazy ideas like like Harari does. By itself, it would just be another crackpot scientist saying something or you know, mm -hmm. historian, whatever. But when you consider he's the head advisor to the World Economic Forum, Klaus to Klaus Schwab, when you consider that he's influenced all of the one thousand companies that belong to the uh, the World Economic yeah. Forum and so many others. His biggest fans are Obama and Mark Zuckerberg, right? I mean, this is not a guy exactly. who's uh, just saying crazy right. stuff to himself alone in a room, though I wish right. it were that way. <laughs> that's exactly right. He has an impact and he has influence. And that's what makes this, that's what really makes this so radically, radically dangerous. And, uh, you know, he may, on one hand, you know, he may be right that some of this is going to be inevitable and it's going to happen. But it's not going to happen in the way that they most expect it's going to happen. I, again, back to our discussion that, well, do these people really know what they're doing? No. Uh, I, there's a lot of evidence that says, no, they don't. They, they, they're good at spouting off their prognostications, but there's a real substance behind it. Usually it turns out to be a really, really bad experience, a, ba a bad experiment, and it kind of falls apart in the end. Yeah. And um, I think we're going to see more of that. You know, we, we've got, when you mix stuff like what he's saying along with the actual internet of everything now and the actual collection of data from just about every conceivable location on earth, um, you say, and, and of course the, the growth of artificial intelligence is being laid over on top of it to analyze all that data. In other words, what does it mean? Will they accurately figure out what it means with using this AI or will they simply get some prediction out of it like uh, like a you know like a computer model or something that just tells you whatever it feels like uh, that has nothing to do with reality whatsoever and they all run off and say, oh oh, this is what we need to do now And the whole world runs off and says we all need to put on face masks now. Uh, 
you know, to protect us from the sun <laughs> or whatever. Oh, it's like, no, that's, you know, they're, they're, um, their schemes usually end up leaving people worse off than, than yeah. And I would argue a lot of this sort of religious underpinning is is responsible for that because basically, and, and not just in the article I was reading from, but other things Harari and people like him have said, these people view this future system they're trying to implement right now as as giving them to key the key for them to become gods and basically harari says this he's like you know it's going to be you know he poo-poo's intelligent design of of the past and of uh you know abrahamic religions right and he says um but now uh, the future will be about our intelligent design referring to biotechnology and all of this but also transhumanism you know he talks about specifically calls people like ray kurzweil the crazy transhumanist guy at at Google, um, who you know basically, uh, it's very bizarre. Uh, Ray Kurzweil wants to be re reborn in the metaverse as someone very different than the Ray Kurzweil that we know in <laughs> um, of today. Mm -hmm. He wants to come back as a very prom a promiscuous woman whose name I forget, um, but he likes to mm -hmm. you know in his metaverse type um, engagements likes to present himself as her. But he refers to. Um, Harari refers to Kurzweil as uh, one of the top dataist prophets of Silicon Valley. Um, and, uh, you know, he talks about like, you know, the singularity is near and we're going to come back as these um, great, um, you know, perfect humans made in exactly the way we want to be made. Because obviously, if you're looking at someone, Ray Kurzweil, who desperately wants to be something very different than what he physically is, uh, he's not happy with how he came out. And so he has this extreme dysphoria about his current existence that he thinks technology can save him. And I think a lot of these people sort of feel that way. Um, revenge of the nerds in a sense, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess you could, yeah. you could argue um, that, that maybe it sort of comes from this, but they view it in sort of these religious as sort of their, they link it to like their own salvation from problems that that deeply trouble them yeah. as people and they sort of you know uh, superimpose that as mm -hmm. being a solution uh for everything if only we can redesign life so it works the way we think it should work in all of this then it will be um so much better but what's really insidious is uh, you know that last line i read from um about you know heretics who don't want to be connected, you know, that, that they're going to try and force um, their, their view uh, and uh, their solutions uh, on everyone, even if it means uh, totally destroying life <laughs> itself. Because as right. you mentioned, this isn't just about humans. They want to put censor. This is the internet of all things. This is um, mm. every animal in nature, every tree in the forest, um, everything you can possibly embed censors in and, you know, it's not transhumanism, then it's like trans lifeism, I don't know, trans existenceism. Yes. But literally everything that's that's alive and especially everything that's sentient is getting um plugged yeah. into this, whether they like it or not, right? And yeah. um I think yeah. that's something that mm -hmm. a lot of people no one would agree to this. The 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 quote unquote environmentalists who have been sort of uh, successfully duped by greenwashing would not agree to this at all. And definitely conservatives would not agree to this and people in the middle would not agree to this. Um mm -hmm. and I think that's why so much of this has sort of been left out of of the selling yeah. points even though this is where ultimately they want they want to take things but it's really um you know it it it's a religion and it and it's it, it it's yeah. more apt i think to call it a cult um because it's not mm -hmm. 
you know, a religion um, that would be widely adopted <laughs> um, by by the masses unless they were forced to. Um, I have concerns that there are a lot of these dataists around in positions of, of extreme power, and a lot of them, I think, are Silicon Valley oligarchs, since this is really a yes. quote-unquote religion that's very much enmeshed with the oligarchs of Silicon Valley. And I don't mean necessarily all like the, the lower-level people in big tech companies. I'm talking about the big guys. And this is what concerns me about, you know, a hot topic right now, someone like Elon Musk taking over Twitter, right? And he's being presented as sort of this savior, savior of, of free speech and all of that. But what if someone like Elon Musk is a dataist and he looks at Twitter and says, hmm, this is the perfect way to feed uh, my brain chip company Neuralink and its proprietary artificial intelligence algorithm, uh, <laughs> you know, um, oh, yeah. and to use it for, <laughs> for those purposes, because if the, uh, a dataist, as Harari says, ought to maximize data flow above all else, um, what would someone like Elon Musk do with Twitter? And he's certainly uh, aiming, I think, on one level to restore trust in the platform and to keep people on it and keep people, f uh, you know, on, uh, you know, they may not be happy with the censorship, but they'll think a solution is coming. So they'll keep the data flowing. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And <clears throat> Musk is, um, is a consummate technocrat in every way. Uh, it's just it's just worth mentioning again that his grandfather was a head of technocracy in Canada during the 30s and 40s. That's fascinating. And that Musk grew up in the technocrat mm. home. Um, he's steeped in technocracy. Uh, <clears throat> there's markers all over his life that he still remains a technocrat to this day. And now he just happens to be the richest man in the world. Um, but having said that, he is 100% in line with virtually everything that Klaus Schwab ever said. Yeah. Um, and I, you go back and look at some of the tweets and stuff he's made over time. He's, he's all of them. He's in favor of carbon tax. He's in favor of uh, universal basic income, which is a major uh, technocracy plank from the thirties. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's totally in favor of all the injections and stuff going on. He's in, he's in favor. He's a transhumanist. Yep. Uh, clearly he's self self-avowed transhumanist and he believes in a one world government, um, or governance situation in the end. So, uh, Musk is not who he appears to be, clearly, but uh, people are glomming onto him as being, you know, kind of the savior of free speech and all that kind of stuff. But to my understanding, and I've studied Musk a lot because of his relationship to his grandfather more than anything, uh, as as being part of the original technocracy movement. <clears throat> Musk is um, is very much dedicated to the original principles of technocracy which was centered on data uh, on multiple points. And he's proven that with the stuff that he's making, with the stuff that mm -hmm. he's invested his money into. Um, so he's not, whatever he's going to deliver with Twitter, it's going to be something different than what people think uh, in the end of it. And it is a huge source of data. You're absolutely right. It's probably one of the largest sources of data that we have right now on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, better, a better source of data, for instance, than, than Facebook is or Instagram. Well, one thing that might uh, be a factor here is also um, sort of enshrined in this, this dataism um, uh, religious construct. And it's a, it's what they call the, the freedom of information. Right. Um, and the uh, Harari, right. Makes the point that this isn't like freedom of speech or freedom of expression. Freedom of expression was given to humans 
and protected their right to say and, and think what they want, right? Um, but freedom of information is not given to humans. It's given to information, right? So um, it's privileging the right of information above all else, including the rights of humans to own data and restrict its movement, right? Um, and I think that Elon Musk, someone like that with, uh, might be viewing Twitter's data sort of in, in, in those terms as well. Um, because all of these big tech companies, you know, they, they like to try and assuage people's concerns saying, oh, you'll have control over your data. The World Economic Forum says this stuff too, right? Um, you'll be able to control what can be seen, what can't be seen. You'll be in ultimate control of their data. But at the same time, they're saying, well, actually, according to our religion, uh, the rights of information are more important than human rights. So um, we can't infringe on the right of information to freely circulate, for we are dataists, and this is our new religion. So uh, you can say what you want, but ultimately, it's the right of the information to circulate as it will, like water. You know, it's sort of um, exactly that that kind of mentality. And and not only that, though, but, you know, speaking of Musk and Twitter, he's talked about authenticating all real humans, which basically um, is part of a longstanding World Economic Forum uh, driven policy agenda to uh, link your access to social media with a government issued ID. Um, <laughs> which ties back to the digital right. ID stuff and all of that. So, um, you know, the Elon Musk Twitter takeover is not what you think it is. And uh, once all those changes start going into effect, I have a Twitter, but I won't be keeping it for that. I'm not going mm -hmm. to help people stay on the platform that's um, feeding this yeah. to an extent. But going back to what we talked about earlier about how their uh, predictions are very lofty and what they accomplish is very lofty, doesn't really meet up with reality. Um, I would sort of argue that, you know, this move by Musk is to restore trust in the platform to keep people on Twitter and, and social media. Mm -hmm. um, and we may see sort of similar changes with special billionaire saviors coming to save the other platforms. And I think it's because they, they need the singularity, right, in order to affect a lot, to manage sort of this, this technocratic system they're developing, um, because it's just so much data and so many data points that they need like a global brain, basically, you know, to, to sort of manage it all. And that's the singularity, mm -hmm. essentially, and they haven't achieved it. And they definitely thought it was going to be coming for a long time. You know, like Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near. Well, actually, it's not because it's still not here, Ray. So I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, um, but it hasn't worked. So yeah. maybe yeah. they think that they just need just a little more data, more and more data um, to keep it going. And so if they keep our attention and keep us feeding these platforms with our data just a little longer, they'll get it. And then they can they can hatch the trap. What do you think? Yeah, well, that that's right. In their mind, it's all a fait accompli. We just have to wait long enough for it to happen. Um, and even if we see no evidence now, we still need to wait. I would relate a story without giving any names that uh, a friend of mine who went to a conference where a leading transhuman figure was present and he kind of made friends with this guy um, and was able to sit down with him and talk to him casually like out in the, the hallway in a chair, you know, the seating area. <clears throat> and they had a nice little chat and um, I won't, again, I won't mention any names, but this guy said to my friend, um, and my, my friend asked me, he said, well, so, so what kind of progress do you see transhumanism having made in, in the last, say, 25, 30 years since the 1990s? And <clears throat> this guy confided in him, thinking he was kind of on the, on the inside, you know, like one of them. He wasn't, but he, he thought that. 
And he said, well, you know, I have to confess that in, you know, in all the, for all the stuff that's happened with advanced technology has come along and, you know, uh, great stuff out there. It looks like it's a great feature, whatever he said, you know, after, after 25 years of, of working on this, he says, we're not one inch closer to immortality than we were when we started. And he was rather depressed Whoops. about that. <laughs> but yeah. but the, was that enough to, to, to wave him off to say, hey, why don't you give it up? You know, maybe you should just, you know, maybe your ladder is leaning on the wrong mm -hmm. tree here. Um, but uh, he didn't, he has not given it up. He's still a leader in the transhuman movement. But uh, this is a very highly placed mo person in the transhuman movement and openly admitted that everything that they've done over a period of 25 years has not resulted in anything that got them closer to their goals of achieving immortality or the singularity. Uh, that just tells me something, you know, that's just a clue. It says, you know, what we're talking about, you're right. Are they really going to make it happen? Nah, they haven't yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's the key to their eventual uh, well, downfall personally is that they're, they're, they're just going to be like, we just have to wait a little more. We just have to do this. And then the singularity and technological immortality and all of this will happen. And all of our plans can take, take the exact shape that we've been planning because if they can't accomplish that, those things, everything they've built, just falls apart and turns to dust and fails, right? Mm -hmm. And exactly. eventually exactly. what they need to do, the little uh, more amount of time they need to wait and the the little extra yeah. step they need to take to get to that point is going to be a step too far at some mm -hmm. point. And, it, and, exactly. and the house of cards is gonna come down. And I personally don't think we're that uh, far away from that point because um, yes. I think they overplayed their hand with COVID. They didn't you know, hatch the trap soon enough when people were scared. Yes, a lot of people got, you know, suspect um, vaccinations that weren't actually vaccines. They're, they don't stop the con the contagion of anything per their own official yeah. um, description, yeah. right? So, you know, obviously there was some, some stuff that happened, but I, you know, uh, they have much uh, farther to go still to accomplish what they want to accomplish. And I don't think they're going to get there. I think people are going to be like, wait a sec. Yeah. And and that is very true, oddly <laughs> enough, um, here in Chile, where people were very compliant with everything with COVID and with the vaccination. I mean, here in Chile, it's like 93% um, got both doses and close to to that got like a third dose as well. And now they're trying to, uh, but it, it negatively affected the health of many people, the third dose, right? Because you can't, mm -hmm. you can't take public uh, transportation between regions or go on a plane or do a bunch of other stuff. Can't go into restaurants without the vaccination in, in Chile. And um, so a lot of people were forced to do it just because of work and things like that. But now that they're trying to demand a fourth dose, people are like, no. And, and people are really like, for the first time since this whole thing started, for a country that's been trained to be compliant out of fear since the Pinochet era, and ever since, people are starting to be like, I just, we're not going to live like this anymore. We're done. Not everyone, but a lot more people than I had ever uh, expected, given what I've observed <laughs> um, since March 2020, yeah. you know. And if it's happening here, it has to be happening other places. So. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> yes, indeed. You know, I, I talked to a. Um highly um uh kind of a, a well-known political strategist um i won't mention names again just for sake of privacy but i talked to this 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 person was really um a very astute political analyst has been active in several political campaigns over the last 20 years <clears throat> and he said that it is his uh analysis at this point that in the 2024 election cycle 
uh, he said the main, uh, the main topic of the 2024 election cycle is going to be transhumanism. And I thought that kind of took me back. And I said, whoa, really? Okay. So, you know, that he's just kind of surveying the whole political spectrum, you know, what's going on, like the stuff you're talking about. Okay. Like where are people with this whole thing? And he's saying he believes this is going to be a major topic in 2024. That that's really good about what we're talking about, what you and I are talking about here, that, um, that if this does be, if this discussion does become mainstream and people even get a glimpse of what really is going on here with these nutcakes, they will reject it. Yeah. They, uh, they will just walk away Absolutely. from it and, and isolate those people and say, you're not, you're not welcome. Here well, there's a reason that up to this point, they've been disguising it as something other than what it really is. Yes. And that's because <laughs> of, of exactly what you just said. Um, they haven't been able to be forthright with people. At some point there has to be a big reveal. And I don't think it's going to go well for them. Right. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. We covered a lot of ground. Yes, oh I gosh. think I think this was a, a very uh, comprehensive and important podcast. Uh, so thanks again uh, for your time. Can you please let people know where uh, they can follow your work and how they can support you? Absolutely. Uh, Technocracy.news is my primary website for things we're talking about here. And you can get on the mailing list and you can check out my books there. You can also check them out on any other online bookstore anywhere. It's Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation and Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, both books. In fact, uh, also, um, Trial Outs Over Washington is still in publication. You can get that one, too, if you want. But um, uh, the point is, I think, get educated. Get as much as you can into your belt so you really know what's going on. And um, we also have an orga a nonprofit organization up here called Citizens for Free Speech, which is citizensforfreespeech.org. And I encourage anybody that has an interest in keeping free speech alive at this point to to join with us and we are primarily an American-oriented uh, organization, but we do have some foreign members as well. <clears throat> but it's really important in these days to keep the lines of communication open and keep our ability to, to speak freely open. I, I commend everybody like, like Whitney and others that are, that are still speaking out forcefully with actual data, with real stuff, real information. Um, this is what we need today to keep the discussion open and keep the forces of the of this darkness from really closing in on us. So that's just kind of another side note. Um, but otherwise, um, that's about, that's about it. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much, Patrick. Really appreciate you being here. And thanks to everyone who supports this podcast and to everyone who also listens to it and shares it around. So most of you are probably aware, and we mentioned this earlier in the podcast, that I am writing a book on Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, the long-awaited book on Epstein, it is being written, and it will be done soon. But because I have to get it done on time, that means that this will be most likely my only podcast for the month of May. So just keep that in mind. I will be back in June, you know, with the regular podcast schedule. But this will be my last episode for a while. Just wanted to let people know about that. People that subscribe previously got emails to this effect, but for people that that don't know. That's why I'm not really producing so much content at the moment because I am producing a lot of content. It's just going in a book that isn't out quite yet, obviously. So I think you will, once that book is out, people will, you know, be very happy with the, the final product. But of course, it takes time to create. So that being said, thanks for, thanks so much to everyone who's continued to support me despite, you know, the sort of dearth of, of normal content production. But we will, Unlimited Hangout, we'll be having some articles from contributors this month. So it's not like it's going to be absolutely nothing. But anyway, 
As far as podcasts, though, this will probably be it for the month of May. But what a great podcast it was. So thanks again to Patrick for that and catch you all on the next episode.